Hey, everybody. Welcome to a special episode of Kentucky Commons Radio Hour. As a part of Louisville Beer Week 2022, we did the inaugural Stave to Glass Bourbon Barrel Panel Discussion at Bourbon's Bistro, and this is the audio from that conversation. It's a little bit rough around the edges. Uh, We were in a very small room with a train rolling by and uh, more than a couple audio glitches. We've cleaned it up as best we can, and we present it to you for your enjoyment, and thanks to everybody for coming out. See you guys at the Women in Beer panel, which will drop on our podcast feed next week. Everybody hear me okay? Excellent. Thank you guys for joining us tonight. Like he said, this is the inaugural event of Stave to Glass Barrel Panel. Um, so um, Louisville Ale Trail has been gracious enough to help um, the breweries in the Louisville area with many different programs, whether that's the, um, the passport program that gets new, uh, new customers in the door and uh, trying breweries outside of their local neighborhoods that are, uh, that are, you know, not their not their normal local haunts that they're doing. So uh, we're we're all very appreciative of what Louisville Ale Trail doing. And then in the second year of Louisville um, Louisville Beer Week, uh, they've expanded out to do the Stave to Glass as well as a second annual um, Women in Beer panel. We're really uh, appreciative to have some of the best uh, people in the room here from uh, breweries, cooperages, um, and distilleries. So. Uh, like he said, I'm Roger Huff. I'm co-owner and operator of Gallant Fox Brewing. If you haven't been, right down the street on Frankfurt Avenue. Um, and I'll uh, pass it to Lee, and I'll let them go down the row and do a small introduction for themselves. Uh, my name is Lee Northcutt. I'm the head brewer of Scout and Scholar out of Bardstown. Sure. <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, Jerry and Aggie. I'm uh, with Against the Grain Brewery in Louisville, Kentucky. Hey everyone, I am Ariel Yawn with Wood and Bill Whiskey Company coming from Washington State. Live here now, Kentucky Girl Selling Washington Whiskey, and I'm the development manager for them. My name is Haley Peros. I am national brand manager for Wilderness Trail Distillery out of Danville, Kentucky, coming to you from Lexington, though. Jethan Adkins. Um, I work for HA Barrel Management and I sell finishing barrels. Excellent. So thanks to all our panel participants today. Um, We really appreciate it. I think a great way to start this off is going to be to get all of the guests that we have out here to talk about what what I think would be a really wonderful way to start is to talk about some of our first experiences with barrels. So not what you're doing now. We're going to get to that. But I want to talk about like, you know, I know we have brewers here. We have some distillers here. We have some people from the barrel industry here. What got you into working with barrels, right? And then what were some of your initial experiences that you guys have had with barrels? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna start on the other end this time. We'll switch it up as we go and we start to start to uh, get into some of the questions here. But I'd love to hear about some of the first experiences that you had and uh, what was good about those experiences, what was a little bit dicey about those experiences and what you learned from those experiences. Um, yeah, so I've been in the barrel industry two years now. Prior to that, I was in tourism, like bourbon tourism. So as soon as I started like selling barrels, I didn't know anything. I didn't know cooperages. I like 
whiskey is a 53-gallon American oak barrel. And so here I am, like a Kentucky girl selling wine barrels. I don't even know how to pronounce like the wines that I'm selling. Still don't know how to pronounce the wines that I'm selling. Um, so was, a lot of it was logistics. Like how, how many barrels fit into a truck? How long does it take? How long do you have before a barrel dries out? And people being like, this barrel leaks. And I'm like losing my shit because I don't know anything. I'm like, oh, it's a bad barrel. But all barrels are bad. They're like stepchildren. Once they're used, you have to like learn how to like <laughs> love them and tend to them. So over the last two years, it's like things that would like freak me out before. I have like people that I can call and like we can fix them and just like prepping customers more, like giving more expectations. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot. And especially with wine barrels, they like sulfur them. And they're like, if you sell a sulfur barrel into the whiskey industry, it's going to ruin the whiskey. And we like ruined like $15,000 worth of Widow Jane's barrels um, before I was on board. Um, <laughs> because we didn't know. We like sulfur barrels. If you don't sulfur barrel, it goes vinegar, like very, very fast. Um and so, like, when they're shipping them overseas, they can't not sulfur. Anyway, just a lot of logistics and, like, let's not mess up people's product that they're putting into these barrels. Yeah. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. <laughs> I liked it. It gave me some, some path to go on from there. Um, so, in the whiskey industry, um, oftentimes, you know, especially with Wilderness Trail, we're a very science-oriented brand, right? So, everything we do is based around science. It's based around the, the yeast, the chemistry, everything that's happening in the fermentation tanks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, wilderness, we, we don't do anything to, you know, we don't rotate our barrels. We don't do anything, you know, special to them necessarily when it comes to the aging process. Um, so for a long time, and especially really even before then learning about whiskey, you know, before even working in the industry, I've been in the industry for six years now. And before then even, the barrel's not really talked about, right? It's always, it's always kind of like, okay, here's, here's our story and here's how we ferment and here's the special thing we do. And then it goes in the barrels and it comes out and later on you got juice, it's done, right? And so it's just kind of like this like skipped over aftermath part. And, you know, in recent years, it started to become, you know, you start to dive into the science of it more and more. And so for a while there, it was, you know, it's still a roulette, right? It's still, you're still going to get different, different properties from different barrels, things like that. But learning about just the science behind barrels changed kind of my mindset behind what it means to age whiskey, right? Like, first and foremost, I learned more about like the fermentation process and the yeast and those things. Um, but once you start developing into the science of like, you know, the different cell structures, you know, especially, uh, you know, different, I don't know anything about, you know, French oak or different, you know, wine barrels, but I know a lot about a whiskey barrel and that's all I know. White oak is where is that? <laughs> and so, you know, you learn about like the different, you know, cellulose, homeocellulose, lignans, all those things. And then it changes your perspective on exactly how much can come from a barrel. Um, so when I was first getting into whiskey, it was all just like, here's the mystique about fermentation. And like, then the later years, I've, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of other cooperages and things like that and learned more about, you know, the science behind um, what's happening in the cell structures within those barrels. And it changes your mindset behind the entire process. And so then, you know, at Wilderness, we haven't done a whole lot of like finished products or things like that, but it really opens your eyes to like, oh my gosh, there's a whole nother world and a whole nother side to like maturation that you just can't even tap into until you like really just choose to dive in head first. So yeah. Awesome. 
Well, um, my first experience with barrels, I would say, is drinking whiskey and wines that have been aged. You know, some are better than others. Super big oaky cabs and Chardonnays can stay in their special place. I personally don't like them that much. So until I started working at a distillery, I really didn't understand what a barrel could do. Um, and when I started at Woodinville seven years ago, we had the same whiskey in eight gallon barrels and 53 gallon barrels. So that was the first time I really understood what the size of a barrel could do to affect the whiskey. Eight gallons, the liquid to surface area ratio is super dark, super tannic. It was only aged for 20 months, so the whiskey was still really green, but it had the color of a whiskey that had been aged for 20 years. Um, unfortunately, fortunately, I'm glad that we don't sell that anymore, but um, it was a great stepping stone for us at the time. And then as we could see what a 53-gallon barrel for many more years could do and experiment with, um, that was when I realized that barrels have a lot of magic. You just know how to use it. Is this thing on? Okay, good. Uh, yeah, my first experience with barrels, uh, I'll, uh, I'll tell you a little, I'll spin you a little yarn here because uh, it's, it's been a long time since I've been working with barrels. 20 plus years, I'm an old man now in beer, but uh, the first barrel I ever aged beer in, well, I'll back up for a second. Back then, we used to, back 20 years ago, we used to have to go to these tasting events and we'd have to like sample our beer out to people. And the whiskey people at that point in time had to do that as well because whiskey wasn't quite as popular 20, 20 years ago that it is now. Well, one of these guys that I met that was sampling his whiskey, it was good whiskey, I thought it was nice. And his dad was there with him too. And I said, hey, would you uh, have any barrels that we could use to put some beer in and try to age that, that beer in it? He's like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll drop some by. And I was like, well, that's great. So uh, he comes in with his Ford Explorer and he drops these two barrels off. They're 20, I was like, I read it on the side of it and it was 23 years old. And uh, I said, hey, can we use your name on these, on this beer that we're gonna, we're gonna have? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah, absolutely, no problem. Here, I'll come, I'll give you the, the file. And it was on like a, a laser disc, you know, it was so long ago that the files had to go on this floppy disk. <clears throat> and uh, anyway, we aged, I don't remember what the name of the beer was in, the, in that barrel or what, what beer we put in it, but it was the, the uh, Pappy, Pappy Van Citra or something like that. I can't, Pappy Van Winkle, no, that's it. Pappy Van Winkle. And it just shows you, well, you know, that was, that was, that was, uh, it was like just friendly back then. But now, you know, if I use like, if I even say the word peepaw, or, or, or poopy in a beer, uh, Preston will uh, email me and said, hey, dude, you can't do that. I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, don't, don't send your whiskey ire on me. But that was my first experience with bourbon barrels several years ago. I think, I think that's a much more uh, fortunate experience to have than what, what we end up with now for first experiences, right? I can't imagine the, uh, I can't imagine the fight over a 23-year yeah, Van Winkle barrel. The would strangest be thing is, well, right now, uh, it was also had like a half gallon of whiskey in it. And so I, I poured it out and I poured it into a bucket and ran it through a coffee filter and put it in a growler, like a beer growler. And uh, uh, this, I'm sorry, it won't take much longer. But like uh, I had it in my kitchen for a long time and uh, I was like uh, making barbecue sauce one day out of the recipe and it said, ooh, a barbecue sauce recipe with bourbon in it. I was like, that sounds good. 
And so it was like, oh, you had a half a cup of bourbon. So I got my Pappy 23 cast strength out. <laughs> That's good bourbon. But uh, I still have it. But uh, um, I, you know, there's no way to prove that I have it. It's it's in a it's in a jar still. We I'm, believe. But you. now it's old. I'm sure if they're uh, videoing this somewhere and someone's watching this live, they're like, you know, someone's someone's rolling over hearing Hold you on. say that. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's texting me now. You can't say those words. I do want to say on that note, if like brewers want to buy whiskey barrels, Diageo is so big, they always forget to dump their barrels. And you can get like, literally like the whiskey barrels will come in like full and a lot of distilleries will rent. But like, we've been pull, like pouring them out in jugs and taking handles of, you know, bullet. So just saying, insider, <laughs> casual, just a, like, sorry, buy those barrels, not for me, just in general. <laughs> Um, from a personal standpoint, I worked at a restaurant and uh, we had we made friends with Avery Brewing out of Colorado, the restaurant I worked at. So we flew out and we got to try, try different barrels out of their barrel room. And that was the first time it, it blew my mind, just the different barrels that they were doing. Um, from a professional standpoint, I really I started my brewing career in 2013. And the first two years, it was just me recouping barrels because I come from Florida and uh, Kentucky does not ha know how lucky it is to get the fresh barrels that you do. Uh, a truck would show up in Florida. And it would be like, how many barrels you want? And you never knew when the truck was showing up. So you'd buy all of them and you could literally see light. Like if you sh if you put a flashlight to the barrel, you could see light through the barrel. So you had to steam it. You had it basically ruined the barrel kind of. But, uh, but yeah, that's sorry. I'm not as entertaining as Jerry. But yeah, that's my story. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll say um, one of my very first experiences as a, a brewer. So uh, I came up through the home brewing ranks. Um, and in homebrewing, barrel, barrel, you don't get barrel usage, right? You're brewing and then, and then you're, you're kegging off. And uh, one of my very first experiences was actually listening to Jerry talk at a uh, Brewers Guild meeting, uh, talking about barrel usage up in Cincinnati. And uh, we were so, so hearing uh, him talk about getting access to some of that stuff actually leads us into one of our next questions. Um, so, too much? Sounds really loud. Got it. Um, so, uh, talk about the the. I know that you talk about twenty years ago getting into doing um, to doing what you're doing at Against the Grain. Things have changed a lot over twenty years, right? So we know that there's being more bourbon laid down now than there has ever been laid down before. Demand is up for those barrels, but also the demand is up for those barrels once the bourbon is out, right? Whether that's wine, whether it's finishing of other spirits and products, whether it's beer. So can we talk about like availability now versus availability of what it used to be? So how hard is it for, for, for you to source barrels and what you do? What's the demand look like on the side from the, from the barrel companies and from the people who are leasing or selling barrels? And from a whiskey perspective, what does that demand look like? And where do your barrels go today, right? Do you have plans? Do you have do you have strategies on on barrel usage post dump? So, we'll start. I'm gonna start one more time on that, end, and then I'll go back down to the center. So, um, yeah, this is a fully loaded question. So, the barrels I have in particular, we are a barrel leasing company in France. We have 53% of the French market. So, these are our barrels. We lease them out. We get them back. We own them, and we have a port seasoning program and a sherry seasoning program. We'll take our wine barrels after they've been used four or five times. They're neutral. We send them to port houses. They age the port for a year. Um, so they get a free barrel. Then they get to dump their port out and then like re-age. So unlimited supply of those, not really unlimited because you have the whiskey industry. Like 
coming in, wanting all of those port barrels, putting a lot of stress on the Douro Valley. Um, but as far as bourbon and whiskey barrels, um, there is a barrel shortage, or like a big barrel shortage. Um, and I, my boyfriend owns a cooperage. Um, shout out to Zach, Zach Cooperage. And so I get to really see the stress of the Coopers. Um, and that shortage comes from a lot of things. They didn't plan to buy as much wood as they were going to buy like last year leading into this. You have so many new distilleries starting up who are wanting this or wanting that, contract distilling. Um, there's that. There's also a lot of people aren't dumping as much whiskey because they were short on glass. Um, a lot of people are internally keeping their barrels. Um, people are making, you have like every single freaking distillery. It's like, we are building a brand new distillery and increasing our capacity times three. And you're like, that's cute because you have like five cooperages supplying everyone everything. And there's not that much American oak, you know? Um, so that, that barrel shortage is projected to be the next three years. But just like a pendulum, it'll always swing back. You know, it'll, I think it's probably at, I would say like peak right now for used barrels. Um, and even new barrels, new barrels are like, gosh, probably going up again. Like they're increasing in um, price probably at 10, 20% at the end of the year. And then it'll kind of level out. I think that's what's projected and no one knows. I just came back from a Cooper's conference um, and everyone was like all the Cooper just, you have ISC there and like, you know, the big guys and they're all like, they're doing their best, you know, they're doing their best to like supply barrels to people who like have stills, who have relationships with the Cooperages, who are going to be around, who aren't trying to resell at a higher value. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a big shortage. Um, me personally, I've really gotten, um, gotten into STR barrels, which is shave, toast, and rechar. So I've been taking a lot of my American oak wine barrels, um, sh where we shave them down, rechar them to like level three, level four, and then ship them here to try to like, eh, and there's not that many of those, um, just to try to like help alleviate what we can on our part. Yeah. I would say, you know, obviously this might get a little repetitive, but like there is a shortage, but in the bourbon industry, obviously like bourbon specifically has to be a new wide oak barrel every single time, right? So we have a lot of one use barrels that then go off to either different uh, brand relationships that we have or different, you know, major, major companies that we create relationships with that say, and, and a lot of it's based off of what we can then supply too, right? So if it, it, it's, you know, we have to be of a certain scale and say, well, we're dumping this many, we can supply this many. And it's usually different like scotches, Irish whiskeys, things like that, that we can then export overseas. Um, often then we also work with brokers. If we don't have a place for barrels and we say, hey, we have an offset of, you know, 150 wheat barrels. What can you do with them? We don't have any place to put them. Uh, so yeah, we send, send them that way. Um, another, you know, so there's there's often usually like contracts that are available that we say, okay, we can we can keep in supply X Y Z amount of barrels. And usually a lot of those Scotch and Irish whiskeys are not brand exclusive, right? Like they're they're usually working with several different different you know uh, American based bourbons so that they can just keep their own supply at hand too. Um, so there's, there is that. And of course, then you can also work with other different whiskeys to do ages. I also appreciate being able to do like 
um, just smaller one-off things with different like breweries just and wineries, different things like that, because it creates brand relations, uh, which is nice, especially just from a marketing and sales point to say, hey, you're a major brewery in Portland, Oregon. We love what you do. We want to be bigger in Portland. Let's do a collab. Let's do a big release, things like that. So it's also good for brand relations just to be able to kind of like create those ties uh, in different in different markets as well. Um, so that's kind of what we do a lot of times with our, with our barrels when it comes to like, just, just those smaller, like one-off things too. So. Yes, definitely similar situation. I actually met a distiller from New York last week and he was talking about his problem with different cooperages because he's not regularly used the same cooperage and not had the same relationship year over year and how he can now not get barrels as consistently. So we're very thankful that we've been using ISC since the beginning, 12 years ago, and they have, um, done huge favors for us. We've always had barrels, never had a problem, and we've gotten to experiment with them too, which is really cool. Um, as far as reselling barrels, we send everything we have right now, unless it's leaking, to the Glenmorangie Company in Scotland. So they do barrels for Glenmorangie and Ardbeg. We used to sell all of our barrels to local breweries. Obviously, Washington State has a lot of huge breweries, so for a while it was very lucrative. Um, but then it kind of became a full-time job for someone and we didn't have that position open. We actually sold all of our eight gallon barrels, um, through the American Home Brewers Association too. So you might've gotten an ad a few years ago for these eight gallon barrels, if you are um, part of that, <laughs> which was really cool because most people do five or 10 gallon batches at home. And this was a way for home brewers to experiment with our smaller barrels. So yeah, that's, um, what I got for you. Excellent. Jerry? Uh, yes, the uh, the question was about sourcing barrels. Yeah. Is that what, okay? All right, just making sure. No, uh, yeah, for for sure, we've known about this barrel shortage in distillery side for years now, and uh, you know, ISC has, is really good. We really like those guys. We don't we we uh, I've learned a lot from those people from for sure. But as far as the brewing side and how we procure barrels, you know, it's obviously I can give you a history lesson of how easy it was. Or how hard it was, I guess, because you just had rent a truck and go get them from somewhere. But uh, back then, barrel brokers were really unreliable too. I I think uh, because they only seen part of it, part of what was going on. So I'd been to uh, warehouses in Bardstown where we picked up fresh barrels that they'd have barrels stacked, you know, you know, ten high as far as you could see because they were kind of trash back there. They were just finding a value. A barrel broker would pick them up and they'd come out the front of the stack or wherever they were and uh, they'd say, oh, we just, you know, these are three weeks old. No, you picked them up three weeks ago, but God knows how long they've been sitting in this warehouse. And so, but nowadays that's not really the case because you have so much turnover of this stuff and, and, and distillers know what they have now. Um, so nowadays I don't go, I don't do any of the sourcing myself. I do go to through bur uh, bur uh, barrel brokers because uh, if I went and got a, a truckload of barrels, about 10% of them would be kind of garbage anyway. Uh, those get weighted out and I give the barrel broker the margin that I would have took anyway. Uh, so basically I, I get our barrels from barrel brokers. If I wanted to talk about like different kinds of barrels, um, we can talk about that maybe in another question yeah I've got because some, that's I've got that's question. kind of an important thing too uh, but uh yeah, i think that's about all i got i think lee can take it from here take us home lee yeah 
tell tell us tell us about sourcing barrels. Is it difficult for you, Lee? Uh, for we're very fortunate to be in Bardstown, uh, so it is not very difficult. Um, but I really hate to say we literally just text the distillery and we get them. So I, I don't. Know. <laughs> I'm really not trying to rub it in, but it is the truth. So you might as well say it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. In the uh, in the in the in the Kentucky Guild of Brewers, it's a in, it's kind of an inside joke with Lee being in Bardstown and how easy how easy it is for uh, for Lee in Bardstown to to call someone when they need a barrel. And while it's not difficult, super difficult for us in Louisville, I would say that we still have uh, we still are very fortunate to be so close to Bardstown, Kentucky, and uh, we're also very fortunate with a lot of those. You know, you hear on the side when Jessica talks about all of the new you know boutique distillers that are starting to pop up. And it's really putting a stress on the barrel market. But what that does on the other end is it, it means there's a lot more barrels available for end producers like like breweries. So um, while a lot of those are, are not actual distilleries, they're sourced whiskey, there's still a lot of those barrels, a lot of those finished barrels that hit the market, which is why if you're buying beer now or you're going to a tap room today versus 10 years ago, you see stuff that's completely different. I mean, how I mean, going into a brewery ten years ago been very difficult to to find, uh, you know, an orange curacao, Grand Marnier finished beer, or uh, a red wine, which previously was a bourbon barrel beer. Uh, but now those, I think, there's a proliferation definitely here in Kentucky. We are fortunate to have the riches that we have. But um, I was talking to Michael Muller from the Ale Trailer today, and uh, you know, he was in Fairbanks, Alaska, and he saw a brewery aging a bunch of beer in Willet barrels, which is you know, it just shows how the barrel market is, is changing, you know. Um, barrels are a very interesting thing, right? So barrels were were not born of tradition, they were born of necessity, right? So these are things that date back to ancient Egypt. These were vessels that carried cargo, eventually a better way than clay pots because of fragility to carry liquid. And then over time, the nuances of the vessels that were really just for carrying became a thing, right? It became a liquor or it became a spirit. And eventually, um, Bourbon County, Kentucky turned that completely on its head to make, you know, the spirit of, of the United States. And we're all, I think that's, you know, we're all very fortunate here in Kentucky to be part of the heritage of that, that, that reaches globally. This market here inside of Louisville, inside of Kentucky is, is one that's tremendous. So kind of leading into that, you know, bourbon has been, 50, you know, it's 51%. We, we, we talk about the things that make bourbon bourbon and the similarities, but I think where things have gotten very interesting in the last several years is the, what is the other part of that? What are, what are people experimenting with today and, and how are you getting a different taste? So, um, how do you skillfully achieve different flavors, whether you're talking about, I'm gonna start with Lee here since I, since I ended with you last time, but cool. Utilizing barrels, how do you achieve different flavors for your beer, for your collaborations, for your whiskey? If you're if you're doing something that's not your base or your core recipe, and you can talk a little bit about that as well if you want, but how do you get something that's different? Because we know the market now is looking, you see a product like a 1792, or you see a product like a Weller, and a few years ago they had one or two expressions of those. And now you see, you know, 1792 has sweet wheat and they have um, they have a port wine finish, they have a high rise. So now we're seeing a similar recipe across the board, but even from a beer perspective, you might have a base recipe that gets a different barrel treatment. So how do you guys go about achieving those things? Uh, for me, like I said, we're, we're so lucky to be in Bardstown where we've actually like made connections with these, these distilleries. So, uh, 
the the one thing that comes to mind is uh, our collab we did with Evan Williams Bourbon Experience in Louisville. So I was very fortunate enough to sit down with Jody Filiatru, who is the artisanal distiller. Uh, we drank his release that he was about to release, and we went over tasting notes together. Um, and obviously, like, I'm never going to say I know bourbon. You know, that's where he comes in. So, like, the tasting notes he's, he was getting and I was getting were totally different. Um, so we came up with, like, he was going to give me the barrels, and we did an imperial rye saison with cardamom. Uh, we were getting cardamom off the actual bourbon. So, like, picking up that note and just kind of vibing off them uh, was, was an awesome experience. And we did the beer, and I'd like to think it turned out good, you know. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, but what I do really is just, you know, the team around me, I have a really good team. And then also like the distillers who come in and want to work, which is very fortunate. But yeah, that's unfortunate. I don't have any good team. <laughs> Luckily, they're not here. No, I'm just joking. They're they're okay. Uh, far as interesting uh, new things that we would have done with barrels, you know, that's really kind of uh, kind of loaded question here, because when it comes to beer, I think. Um, there are some differences between different producers of barrels uh, or different like bourbons that would go in the barrels. So you get uh, you know the you get the Knob Creek or you get the oh I don't know what's another Four Roses or something like that. You know, are there big differences in in when you put beer in them? I would say no. I'd say no. I don't care what you guys say. <laughs> I'd say no because our contact time is very you know fairly short. You know, what, what What we are actually drawing out when you put beer in a barrel is it's wood character, but it's wood character is dissolved in that alcohol that is kind of moving a little bit in and out. We don't have these seasons particularly uh, for beer. We don't particularly want them. Uh, you do have the reactions when we have bar beer in barrels in, in summer months. You get an in increased reaction. But really, all you're doing with that little bit of alcohol that's moving into your beer with all that wood character that happens in a matter of weeks. The maturation, if you're going past that, is more about oxidation and micro-oxidation of your beer. So really when you're talking about getting, you know, getting fun with different flavors and talking about wood, we do more oak treatment with the barrels too. You know, we do the barrel itself with for spirit, but we'll do uh, wood treatment in that barrel or outside the barrel you know, before or after to increase certain flavors that you would have in the spirit. But you're, you're not going to extract that in beer in, in weeks. You're going to, it's going to take years, just like you guys do it with, uh, with whiskey. So we're able to, with that fresh wood, that's, you know, we, we talked about the lignin and the hemocellulose and the, well, you've got the vanillins and the eugenols and the, all the other things, the, the cis-lactones and the trans-lactones. You know, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, those, those are the things that we are, are, are adding to beer to get a different extraction that boosts, like, wood flavor without, uh, you know, having to age beer in barrel forever and it be overly oxidized and, like, it's degrading for us. That's a really weird thing about, I think, the difference between beer in a barrel and bourbon in a barrel. You put bourbon in a barrel, and next year it's worth more. And the year after that, it's worth more than that, and so on and so forth until a certain point. You put beer in a barrel, and one year it's worth less, and, and you know, in two years it's worth nothing. And you know, so <laughs> it's just it's much different the like, way we have to, to approach these things. So.
That's my thought anyway. Excellent. Well, as far as Woodinville goes, we're very fortunate to be in wine country in Washington State. So we've had quite a few wine producers just literally roll barrels over and be like, hey, you want to trade? So they are doing crazy big boozy barrel aged red wines. And we've done some really awesome finishes. Um, most of them are sold through our tasting room. We do a taste choose bottle event um, where we literally drill a hole in the front and put a spigot out and people can try whiskey straight from the barrel. I mean, it'd probably be classier to thief it, but it takes a lot longer. And so we've done like Petite Syrah and Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon and dessert wine finishes from Washington, not necessarily port. It led to our port finished bourbon that we now get barrels from Portugal. Um, but Washington State is not known for port. So I would say um, access to local or wineries has really helped us. And relationships are like none other in this world right now, just like anything else in any industry. Your relationships matter so much. Um, right now, we've also gotten barrels through a few different barrel brokers. And hopefully soon with Jessica H&A. I'll throw your, your email to everyone at the distillery this week. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, they're not yet. <laughs> um, but those have been some really fun finishes that we have done outside of our regular, just trying to source regular bourbon whiskey barrels. Hope that answers the question. It does. I think it gives us a really good uh, goal for next year to be able to have a whiskey thief for this event, right? Let's get it a little bit bigger and we'll we'll all start we'll all start pulling out. So so I will say at Wilderness Trail, we're even though we're very science oriented, we're a bit of traditionalists. Um, we haven't really come up with a lot of like barrel finished products or anything like that, which is very popular. It's growing increasingly in popularity uh, in the in the bourbon industry just because it's just a, a fun and interesting new way to do things. It's also a very um, fast way to use an exclusive product. Uh, and anymore these days, a lot of clubs, a lot of different um, organizations want something that's like, hey, what can we get that's exclusive that like you haven't released like, yet? What's what's new to us that you know you can't you can't give to anybody else? And one thing you can't rush is time. As much as we try, we can't rush the maturation process. Um, and so with that, you can't necessarily just bust out a six-year, eight-year, 23-year product suddenly out of nowhere, right? Uh, unless you want to buy it from somewhere, somewhere else. Um, so finishing products is a really good way to, to do that. Uh, so we're just now starting to kind of like branch our wings into that. Um, for the longest time, all we've ever done is just usually ISC, you know, regular, regular 53-gallon barrel, level four char, that's it. You know, and there's a lot of just different flavor notes and things that are coming from that alone, right? Uh, as we talked about the cellular structures and just what happens with like a, 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 a polylysis or a pyrolysis or thermolysis like process with it. Um, but really one of the different things that we do is we do a longer stave dry. Um, so stave dry, you know, usually is about six to eight months generally. And really all it is, is it's leaving those staves out kind of palletized and out and exposed to the elements. Um, we do about an 18 month stave dry for, for our barrels. Um, so nearly triple the time. And really what that does is that actually, um, leaves those, those staves exposed to the elements. It leaves them exposed to different fungi, different microbes, things like that. I almost equate it sometimes to like, you know, when you like marinate, uh, like a steak, for example, and you put different acids and things like that to kind of tenderize the meat a little, that's what you're doing to the staves is you're, you're, you're exposing them to these elements to make those different 
sugars, those different, uh, you know, furfurals, things like that, more readily available once they go through like just the through the kiln process. And then once it enters the barrel, um, because obviously and differently from beer, you know, you have a, a higher alcohol uh, level. Uh, which creates a different level of like, um, you know, polarity and the solvency of different chemicals, uh, structures within the barrel. Uh, so when you stave dry for a little bit longer, it allows for those, those different cells to be a little bit more open, a little bit more available. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily like obviously speed up the maturation process, but allows those, those, you know, that alcohol to penetrate a little bit deeper and get it to those, those cellular structures a little bit faster. Uh, so that's just one thing that we do a little differently. One thing that we are, I don't know if I should say this one thing we're doing soon, <coughs> say it, say it now. Um, uh, and kind of to branch out from that, you know, we, we talk about different, you know, wines and, and different spirits and things like that. Um, we're doing an experiment that we did with a store up in um, uh, Boston where they took two of our barrels and they finished, uh, they aged a maple syrup in there. Uh, so now we have maple and syrup imparted, uh, you know, flavor profiles there. Then they then ship that back to us and we are refinishing our product in those barrels. Uh, so only a few months, which also finishing product, you know, the, the amount of time is also, you know, depend is very dependent on those barrels too. Right. Uh, you may only need like a month or a matter of weeks for a certain type of wine, whereas you may need three to six months for something that's a little bit softer, softer on the palate or softer in the, in the chemical structure of it. Uh, so that's one thing that's going to be our first actual finished product that we'll be coming out with soon. So, yeah. Just in, can you hear this? Can you hear me? Okay, I'm just in sales, so I rely heavily on feedback from my brewers and my distillers on the barrels that I have sold them. Um, yeah, people like John over here with the rum barrels and how long that takes. So when I have barrels, I try to give just as much information as I can. Um, this barrel has been used X amount of times. The wood is this old. It's this toast level. It's this char level. This is the mash bill that was in it before. As much as I like can be transparent, because I'm going to leave that up to the distillers and brewers to do what they want with their product. Excellent. Well, as we kind of approach the end here, I want to have a couple more questions. Um, specifically, kind of pivoting out of what you do on a daily basis and more so thinking about consumers and consumer-focused stuff, right? So we're always thinking about consumer trends, right? So the consumer buying bourbon today and buying beer today and, and barrel aged beer today is a little different than the consumer was. Um, maybe a little bit more experimental, a little bit more um, has more of an open palate to, to different things. And, and that's why I think we see so many different expressions that are out there now. But what are consumer trends that you guys are seeing today that your specific companies are focused on? Where, where do you see your pivots going over the next year or two? Um, any things that your, your, your companies are already doing? I mean, you talked a little bit about maple syrup aging as something that's a finish that we haven't seen out of Wilderness Trail, which is exciting. But is there anything else that you guys have in the works that, that's shareable that you, can, that you can talk about with us tonight? I'm going to start on this end this time. Oh. <laughs> um, honestly, I would say finishing just in general, like different casks. Every distiller or brewer is like, we want something different. We want something unique. What do you have? So it's really just about finding those barrels or having those barrels and 
letting people play with them and see what works and what doesn't. What's the most unique barrel you've sourced for someone? Everything is unique. Everything well, is mean, beautiful. <laughs> um, <laughs> to me, honestly, like they're all, because they're like these wineries, like our headquarters are in Bordeaux. Um, we also have a headquarters in Napa Valley and Sonoma. And so each winery is different. I think the most interesting thing I have is some like brandy casts from like 1954 that are about to come. Um, I, I'm waiting until it's really, really cold. So these barrels just don't fall apart because they're $900 a piece once they get here. Um, so I'm like most excited about those barrels probably. That's excellent. I remember a years ago, uh, and I won't say what distillery this was, uh, as they were getting into finished stuff, I saw Tabasco barrels there. And uh, I specifically remember that that distillery never put it out. So, I mean, it's always fun to to, <laughs> to talk about, you know, things that, that you try that, that maybe may or not work out. But uh, it's very interesting. I was actually at Angel's Envy a couple of weeks ago, and they had two Tabasco barrels that were, like, taped over. And they're like, you can smell it if you want. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> but it could be good in a Bloody Mary, you know? Maybe. Experiment, right? Um, yeah. So as I mentioned before, obviously, I the the finished product is like super hot in whiskey right now. That and high proof. Everybody wants cast strength. Everything. Uh, there's high proof chasers left and right. Um, and I do, I do think that like having a finished product, you know, I'll, for example, Wilner's Trail. We're turning ten next year. Um, which is a long time for a business in general, but it's not that long in the world of whiskey, right? Um, so when you're trying to come up on aged product and you're trying to hold back to like store those barrels so that you can actually have aged product to provide to the masses at some point, you don't want to just, just be forking out whiskey left and right and saying, oh yeah, we have a barrel six year, here you go, here's our one. So wait a couple more years for the next one, you know? Um, and so I think that's a really easy, not easy, there's an art to it, obviously. I don't want to like, you know, poo-poo that at all, but like it's a, it's a really fast way and efficient way to create something very unique and very individualized um, and give somebody a special offering, especially, and, and, that, and that's the other thing is they, they want, okay, well, what can we get that's exclusive or new or different? Um, and I will say that for Shane and Pat, our, our owners, um, the idea of that was almost intimidating. They're, they're very science brained, right? So variables is just, you know, wild to them. They need to, they need that control. Right. And so when, once you introduce a, a, a barrel that has 33 staves and those staves have, you know, lived 33 different lives and, and can impart 33 different flavors all around the board or whatever, you know, that then that creates an entire roulette for them. So they're just now kind of opening their mind to being able to do that, which is why we're releasing, you know, the, the maple first is kind of an experiment to go by. Um, and they, but they're really enjoying it, but definitely I think that's just like one of the hottest things um, you know, for us, otherwise, like for younger distilleries, it's all just about just trying to hold back product to to wait and age and see how that goes for you. You know, um, you know, you can only hope that it gets better year after year after year uh, and that you reach those six, 18 year marks and that you can really produce a, a quality product at the end of the day with that. So. I definitely have to agree with all the same sentiments. When I'm out and hearing what consumers have to say to me, they want an age statement, they want the highest proof they can get, and they want any new finishes. So we have definitely played around in the finishing world because it is so quick to get a new product out. Um, our big release this year at the distillery is a port finished rye, which is also not super popular on the market. So we're 
hoping that it'll be well received. Um, but it is pretty wild that those are what people are chasing. As far as the average, average consumer goes, I think they would probably just want something consistent batch to batch. But I think all of those things can translate well into the beer world as well. Um, I recently had the E.H. Taylor and Sierra Nevada seven-year-old release and people were losing their minds over it. So I feel like if whiskey distilleries can have a seven or 10-year age statement and then now breweries can add that too, I know it's really expensive to wait around that long for anything to age, but I think people will lose their minds for it. Excellent. So it sounds like on the whiskey side, finishes and, and, and strong proof, high age. What about on the beer side, guys? Well, Roger, if I knew that question, <laughs> if I knew the answer to that question, I would have uh, not driven, driven here in my Nissan. I would have been dropped off in the limo like these guys over here. But... Uh, no, I mean, uh, hell, I don't know, right? You know, it's, it's been, we, we've done just so much stuff in barrels over the years that, uh, you know, really the only thing that really sticks for us uh, as, a, as a larger release, as a, a brewery that is a little bit larger, ages a little, ages a little bit more and has to package and send it far away, which has its own set of, of challenges, uh, is big, big barrel aged stouts. They're kind of like right down the middle again. Uh, we did the 70K this year, which is the one that had the most accolades accolades uh, uh, from winning some competitions and stuff like that. So that's where our bread and butter is with beer, uh, bourbon barrel aged beers. Uh, as far as the other stuff, we've done some things during the year um, that, uh, you know, we're just kind of like, uh, uh, we need we got these barrels, we need to figure something out. So do I know what the consumer wants? No, I don't. Do I know what works? Yeah. Sometimes, I think in the um, in, in the vein of finishes, you guys were one of the first breweries to make finishing as mainstream, at least for us here in Kentucky. I, I, I feel like the the Amberana aging stuff that you guys did. Can you talk a little bit about some of the the different woods and finishes that you used outside yeah. of traditional bourbon barrels? Yeah, that that was really fun, and that that is you know I I, I speak from uh, from 2022 mindset right now, but you know 2019 Jerry was quite a bit more optimistic. So let me let me let me dial him in real quick. Oh yeah, we we, do, we love to experiment with barrels and stuff. It's great, but no, that was pretty cool. To uh, you know, I think there was only twelve of those made, and uh, they tried to take them away from us, but we got them anyway. So uh, the Amberwana wood that was really neat. That was uh, we did that in probably what twenty seventeen maybe. Um, I went to Brazil for like a conference. I got invited to Brazil. To, to give a, a speech, <laughs> kind of like this. I conned them into sending me down there. And uh, went to a couple of Cachaca places, and, and we, we ended up getting uh, one of the barrel brokers. He wanted to go with us for some reason. And uh, he was kind of a weird guy. But anyway, he talked it, talked. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, he's, yeah, anyway. Uh, <laughs> He wouldn't eat lettuce or anything down there. He wouldn't. He wouldn't drink water down there. And I'm like, oh, oh come on, you know. And then, well, anyway, this, we won't go any further. But uh, um, he was able to commission somebody down there, a, a cooper down there, to make um, barrels. You know, 53 gallon bourbon size barrels uh, for him to, to send. He had to have them sent to Scotland then over here for some reason. But uh, um, I said, well, if, if you're going to do that, I want them. I want some. And he's like, oh, absolutely. Won't leave you out of this deal. Well, he did. 
But I had the, the people in Brazil told me, oh, yeah, how are the bar barrels? And I'm like, what now? And so I called him. He called. I called him on it. He gave me two barrels, and we've been using those for the Bow and Luke was the first year. The 70K was the second year. And that was the one we sent to the Great American Beer Festival and won the gold medal for barrel-aged beer, which is a, hot, a highly contested category. But those were really fun times of like, you know, we were always trying to figure out something new to do with this big barrel-aged stout for some variants and, and everything like that. One That one year it was wood. I think we used white ash. We used sassafras wood, too. And uh, something else. I can't remember. Oh, the amber on it, obviously. That was a fun time way back then. But as far as now, you know, it's still the same, same stuff. It's, it's just more of, of oak toasting. It's different, you know, things that we, you know what, Roger, I'm going to tell you a secret. Now, uh, you know, I'd I don't want any of these people listen. But, you know, we're doing barrel-aged beers without the barrels. We're doing it with wood in some, some cases now, and we're getting some of the same flavors that we could without the maturation time nor the oxidation issues that we had. So uh, the, two of them came out last year that were, wood aged over, you, frankly barrel aged or they weren't barrel aged why are you, you doing it just, with why don't you explain it, just a little bit about the difference between that just a second do i have to okay well i mean that's well, why you're well, that's why you're we, here we put the you know everybody puts you know it takes normal people to put beer in a barrel but to be against the grain roger you gotta cut the barrel in the beer you see and that's basically what we did so it's basically the the wood the toasting of the staves specifically and these probably get, these guys probably know what I'm talking about. That that we're getting some, the the same flavors without moving that beer into a barrel, moving it out, you know, getting the oxidation. So you're able to put lighter beers, more more uh, delicate beers, uh, and give them a barrel aged treatment without the barrel. So I think that's pretty cool. But it's like it's kind of short. It's to me, it's not it's not as interesting to these people out here as it is to me about process to do it. You know, if that makes any sort of sense. It have is you heard? Of, week, so. Have you heard of the squirrel? The what? I have heard of the squirrel, but I don't. I don't. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I have never uh, used a squirrel. So you're using staves, though. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you done anything with chips or spirals yet? Yeah, in chunks and and, and all uh, kinds uh, of shapes and forms. Like, huh? uh, triangles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> round things. So, so to, and I know a lot of people are from the industry here, but um, there's lots of different ways that the beer industry and even the, 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 the uh, spirits industry is trying to impart wood flavors. And as Jerry talked about, utilization of staves is a big way. Um, so you don't have to push that in and worry about oxidation that's happening, right? Um, but um, spirals, they're also cutting out of, out, of, out of whole wood spirals that can go into different tanking. Uh, and, and age to uh, reduce oxygen that, that hits those tanks as well as chunks and cubes and, and squirrels, which are a, a crazy square looking device that you slide staves in the side of. And it's it's um, like $15,000. Yeah. And they're super squirrel. expensive. So this isn't, this isn't to save money, <laughs> right? This is, this is more, more to get the, the product that you're looking for without the risk of, which is a risk in not just beer, but also in distilling. Uh, the risk of oxidation inside of that spirit. So, Lee, I know that you guys have quite the the barrel program. Um, why don't you tell me what about consumer trends? I know that you guys you 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 um, you definitely march to the the barrel aged drum out in Bardstown, but yeah, I try to put as many styles as I can in barrels. Uh, also, this year, like we're definitely going to work with chars. Like we have a collaboration on the book. We're doing the same 
beer, but doing a different char. So you get, I, I don't know, the mic's on my lip. The mic's on my lip, y'all. I don't know. I don't know what y'all want. I guess I can just yell. Um, yeah, I try to put as many different styles of beer in barrels as I can, just being where I'm at. Uh, we have 25 beers on at any time, and I'd say about six to eight are probably barrel aged, just being in Bardstown. Is that a tornado or is it a train? What's that? Okay, cool. Um, all right, so we're safe. We're safe. Uh, but yeah, we're going to do some distillery collabs this coming year, which is very exciting. Uh, we're going to work on char profile too, because I I actually think it brings a lot to beer if you pick the correct style. Uh, we're going to do the same beer and we're going to do like char one, two, three, four, and just like age it and just see how it matures and what, what different aspects it can bring per the char. Um, but yeah. So before I got one more question before I open up here for uh, audience questions, um, I'm I'm up here asking the questions I want to know, but I'm going to give everybody on the panel uh, opportunity to answer the question that you would rather answer that's your own, right? So, what is something that that you would like to talk about inside of what you do on a daily basis that you think brings something to the stave to to barrel uh, panel here tonight? So the stave to glass panel. So whether that is something about your job, something about what you do, something about the way the industry's heading, something specifically just about the company that you're with. Um, I'd love to hear from each one of you guys individually on, you know, barrel specifically, stave specifically, bourbon, bourbon barrel age stuff specifically. But um, what's something that you would like to talk about tonight that you that you, I haven't been able to ask you guys? And then I'm going to open up the floor for some questions from our audience. And I'm going to start on this end this time? Um, I don't know. That's kind of a vague question. It makes me terrified, but I'll try to answer it. Um, I don't know. I like, uh, obviously bourbon is exploding and, uh, Kentucky's known for that. But I, I think the beer scene personally, like is growing tremendously too. Um, so I just, I don't know, like, what was the quote? One more time. Like what was, like anything I want to say, uh, I just, I would love to see like this year, like more distillery bur uh, brewery collaborations. I just think more can be done on that to embrace it uh, just because we're known for bourbon, but I think the beer here too is also fantastic. So leaning, leaning into that. Um, but yeah. I, th I think if anybody can lead that charge, you guys might have the connection to make that happen. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> hello, is this thing on? Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, I guess the only thing you know, I part of being part of the panel, I really love talking about the technical aspects of things, and it's it's much different when you're dealing with beer, uh, and to know what what all we have to do and go through to get the product that's in a can or in a bottle and not have it explode as many times as it has in on your on in your refrigerator on your mom's kitchen or whatever but uh, you know that's what's fun to me is about like we plate all our beer before it goes in the barrel we do sensory on each single barrel set a couple times during during its maturation period we put used to plate i don't do it right anymore right now but we used to plate every single barrel to see if there's any spoilage organisms that would cause any any problems and that's the determination after that of blending blending barrels differently uh even different beers that went in different barrels we used to to brew a specific beer that went into a barrel that never saw the light of day. It was only a blending beer. And I think, you know, 
the idea of putting a beer in a barrel and taking it out after a while or putting a spirit in a barrel and taking it out a while ignores like a lot of the intricate parts of like not only just uh, the, the, the microbiology of it, the sensory aspects of it that we're all doing in both of our, in both of our industries to get this product that, uh, that we are proud of and we want to see you guys enjoy. So I think that's kind of really fun. If anybody has a question on that, or if anybody would like to know more about it, I, I, that's the part where I really love to, to talk about. Awesome. Well, the question is, fun things we do with barrels right now? Okay. Well, um, clearly, my husband's in the beer world, so I have lots of exposure to breweries and distilleries, and I've done some really fun things that I think, yes, there could be way more collaboration between local distilleries and breweries all across the country. I've done a beer versus whiskey dinner, so you had a pairing, and was the beer better or the whiskey better? And people voted the beer won, everyone. I'm sorry, but... Probably just because it's a little easier drinking with a bunch of um, food. Um, but also distilling beer is a whole nother aspect that you could see out of it. The hops do come out kind of funky sometimes, but if it's a lot less hopped beer, you can get some really crazy cool distillates. So maybe that's another thing that you could see year over year, how it changes in the barrel um, from white dog to five years down the road. I tasted it multiple times. We did one with Pike Brewing. It was a barrel aged stop that got an infection, so they didn't want to pour it down the drain. So we just distilled it out to see what would happen. And I would say about three or four years old, it was crazy chocolate covered strawberries, but then it was a little tannic at five years. So I may or may not have some at the house. I don't know if we drink it all, but I'm sure I could like if you all want to come over sometime. <laughs> um, but I have worked with our distillers to actually come up with a plan to bring um, toasted Applewood stave finished bourbon whiskey. So same thing, not doing a new barrel with Applewood because it's fairly porous, but taking the staves, throwing it into the barrel, kind of like Makers 46 and what they do with the French oak, um, aging that out for a few extra months and then sending it out across the country. So that'll be our first like um, big release across the country that was a little different from our normal just wine barrel finish whiskeys. Excellent. Interesting. So I guess my response is more about my what I want to see happen in some of the, the barrel aging process more. Um, I, just because really only within the last few years has like the science come on board with 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 what you know, with the wood structures in the barrel aging process. Um, and, it, and it's really fascinating. And if you've never taken a tour of a cooperage, by all means, go check it out because it will just kind of open your eyes even more so to just like how these barrels are made and what goes into making these barrels. Um, I think it would be an interesting path to go down as far as first and foremost, just a, you know, well, not first and foremost, sorry. Uh, but in my industry, aging spirits, aging bourbon in barrels, you know, and then pairing that with like certain types of finishes starting to like kind of really nail down like what does a port finish do to a rye whiskey what does you know uh, a chardonnay barrel do to a certain product or whatever you know and, and really start to nail down like what that looks like as far as like really imparting those flavor profiles because i feel like with whiskey for example you start to really learn you know okay, you're going to expect these flavors at a two-year rye, at a four-year rye. You're going to expect these flavors from a level two char or a toast and a four-char combo or stuff like that. You know, you're, we're really starting to like really nail that down, well, trying to nail that down in the bourbon industry as far as saying, okay, here's what we know to how to expect just based off of the structure of how this barrel was toasted or charred or whatever. You know, what does that look like when we start to then finish these products in different 
you know, uh, you know, and start to really kind of categorize that better. And then even more so take it to the next level of, you know, what then do these flavors impart to beers, right? Uh, you know, how does that look after all, you know, does, does this, you know, uh, you know, we did a collab with Fall City and it turned out beautifully. It was delicious. Uh, not to brag, but it was really good. Um, but also, but like, what does that do for, you know, how, you know, do you want to pair a rye barrel with a stout? Do you want to pair like, you know, start to go into those flavor profiles and kind of see, I would love to see just kind of trends and how that, you know, what you're looking for, how that would, where to go. The other thing I would really love to see is just like, you know, the, the Kentucky Distillers Association, we have the Kentucky Bourbon Trail now, right? And that's, widely popular and it's beautiful uh and it, it brings a lot of tourism around um i would love to see cooperages and like the ale trail and these things all kind of start to collaborate to like really bring you know more of that information and how these all kind of cross over together more i think that would be a really interesting kind of growth i know that's away from barrels necessarily but it all kind of go coincides so awesome um, you stole mine. <laughs> no, I really think like sharing is caring. I know there's a lot of trade secrets and those kind of things that you don't really necessarily want to share. Um, but barrel finishing and used barrels, that's like really the last couple years. And we're all learning like at what age do you use a barrel? Like what notes do you get? Um, and if we could just like scientifically publish these things for the future generations to not have to go through what we're going through. Um, that's why I like shout out to ISC for Andrew Webrink, who does a lot of um, like actual hardcore science and publishes that on this is what this note is and that versus this. Um, and I always try to get Zach. I'm like, can you teach me how to repair a barrel like a wormhole? Can you just show me because you cannot Google this, you know, like we should know how to repair like silly like little things or just like know the barrel inside and out which really does take a lot of time and effort and just like being in the industry so if we could more science more publications more sharing um i think that would be awesome yeah i know several years back uh, buffalo trace did a single oak project right i don't know if anyone remembers that but they put out 375 milliliter bottles and then they crowdsourced information right so different variables i think there was 250 ish bottles and um, different cuts of the tree for the barrel. So the low cut, the middle cut, the high cut, they had different entry proofs, different recipes. And then the crowdsourcing the information, it was, well, what did you like about those things? So there were, there were, there were questions that were, you know, where you voted on different things that you like, but there were also open-ended responses for them to kind of gather information. But the cool thing about that was it was public. So to your point, I think that, you know, anybody could go out and say, oh, I got bottle 187. What did other people think about this after I've, it's kind of like a, a giant blind tasting, right? Where we were all involved in it. And I think more of that stuff, to, to your all's points, more of that sharing of data, especially as, you know, that was, that was really more around the barrel and, and, and the, the spirit that went in. And now that we've gotten into different finishes and different proofs, what does that look like from a data perspective and, and even on the beer side, right? We don't have to, it doesn't have to set as long for us, but um, it definitely, it definitely imparts different things the longer it sets. And I don't want to let something set for too long, right? So anything that you can, that we can find out or that you can find out is good. So um, I just want to open up. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to repeat any questions that are said so that everyone can hear it. But uh, as we kind of come to the end here, I want to give uh, everyone an opportunity to ask uh, any questions you have. If you have a question for the whole panel or if you have a question for someone specific on the panel, 
Just raise your hand, let me know, speak as loud as you can, and I will I'll repeat it. I'll go first. All right, John. Uh, you guys can go quick fire, but each one of you have we're getting stranded on this island. This might be the biggest for reality, but so bring uh one beer with you, you bring one bourbon with you. Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, Olfo 86. <laughs> well, since I work for Woodenville, Woodenville, 90 proof, okay? Always delicious, but Saison DuPont. I would say a sour beer. I don't know beers like you guys, but like a raspberry sour and probably Buffalo Trays. Standard Kentucky. Wilderness Trail, duh. Rye whiskey, cast strength. We're not fucking around. Sorry, this is PG. Um, <laughs> and then, I don't know, probably like hazy little things here in Nevada. I like a good hazy. Uh, God, I don't know. Uh, uh, Miller High Life and, uh, and uh, the, that, that barbecue sauce that I made. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go to I'm gonna say Boulevard Love Child as the beer and then um, Old Bardstown Bottle and Bond. <laughs> it's the initiation for the panel, right? Go ahead, Court. Um, okay, for the ladies on the left, um, from your perspective, like cost of entry in the bourbon industry. You talked a lot about barrels. Outside of that, what else do you feel? So let's say hypothetically, there's a little brewery down the street that wants to get into distilling. What challenges do you see getting into it today, knowing what you know? And on the opposite end of that for the brewers, how has the evolution of bourbon and whiskey and all the challenges affected you guys on that side? So cost of, cost of entry into bourbon. So for all the new yeah. distillers, and there are so many, mm -hmm. so I would say leaning away from people who are trying to contract distill, right? So more on the, on the actual distilling side, what's, what are, what are the big hurdles that people have to jump to get into the game today? Most people source starting out and the price of sourcing new make even is absolutely ridiculous. Um, shortages of glass, this or that the wait list to get a still um, permitting. I don't, that's. Distillery equipment is not cheap. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, the equipment alone is, is, is insane. It's, it's through the roof um, at Wilderness Trail. You know, we were fortunate that we owned and operated another company um, for over 10 years that allowed us to kind of like, create the funds first and foremost to be able to even build into all of that. Um, so owning a company first would be a good start uh, if you don't want to source um, because sourcing is is kind of the best level of entry um, unless you have outside funding of some sort. You know, we were very fortunate that Shane and Pat owns uh, Firm Solutions. So we provide yeast to a lot of other distilleries, wineries, breweries all across the world. Um, which I, I initially was calling Firm Solutions our sugar daddy to start. So they were the one, they were the one line in the pockets, you know, creating the, creating the funds and really keeping the lights on for us for 
the, our first couple of years, just because that was our, our big source of income. Um, cause the other part of distilling, if you are choosing not to source is that you have to wait. Right. And so cash out, cash out. Cash yeah. Out. <laughs> it's cash out for at least four years. Usually if you want to produce like a really solid product. Um, so waiting on that is just money out the door and bleeding money. Uh, so it is a high barrier of entry. I'll say to um, just the, the popularity of bourbon also just kidding, breaking, making a name for the market. Um is both a blessing and a curse, uh, you know, to it's, it's great that it's popular. So you might have a lot of people wanting to like bite on and catch on, but also it's just like, how do you differentiate yourself in the industry? Yeah. I would say having a story is probably going to be the best bang for your buck down the road. If you, and there's nothing wrong with sourcing, but it's like, how do you tie that into your story? Um, you know, maybe making gin or vodka, or, uh, you know, some moonshine in the beginning, uh, gets, people excited about what's to come. Um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with small barrels. Like I talked about those eight gallon barrels earlier. And um, there's a lot of 15 and 30 gallon barrels out there too, that you can get a really great product at a younger um, age that you can experiment with. And people might be excited, especially if you already have a name for yourself as a brewery, they might want to see what's coming along and see the transition from point A to point B. Yeah, I think we see a lot of breweries kind of tiptoeing around that game. We see brewstilleries that are popping up. So it's very interesting to hear that. Uh, great answers, great answers. So I have a question. Uh, I was really intrigued by the, the discussion about the sort of the post-barrel. Is that, you know, it, it helped you, and we know there's barrel shortage, and I'll, I'll just say, uh, we know also that the feds are working on standards of identity for American single malt, which would allow you to distillers to keep rotating barrels, they don't have to exit, maybe that thing appropriate. But what is, is that, is, is our spirals and swirls, which is the thing you can't do with paradise, right? We'll send you a link after the meeting. <laughs> If I had to guess how the future is going to go, I would imagine at some point in time, new American Oak will not be a thing for bourbon whiskey. I would say from a sustainability factor, if you can shave and rechar, I think at some point it will be a necessity for distilleries to have a longer life of the barrel. I know that most of them are reused till they can't be used anymore. Um, so I think that just like adding American single malt as a style, eventually those laws will change. But I also think that will change how the industry is going to use things and do barrels and all that. That's my speculation on it. I would agree with that entirely just because, you know, we're already feeling so much of the strain of the shortage. Um, we, you know, we've expanded, you know, for wilderness, for example, in full transparency, we've expanded cooperages and things like that just to be able to keep up with the demand and stuff. So if, if like legislature wouldn't change, you know, we'd have to do, we'd have to get real creative <laughs> somehow. Um, and, you know, and also those white oak, you know, they have to be of a significant age, you know, so you just can't just be planting two-year-old trees and ripping them out of the ground and making a barrel out of that. Right. Uh, so I would imagine that something legislaturally would have to change. Um, and then, you know, that may then 
create a different industry for spirals and stuff like that if you maybe aren't getting the flavor profiles that you want to say, okay, well, we can reuse this barrel and then add something to it to to really pull out the, you know, the flavors that we're trying to get. Jumping off the back of that, so um, we know that most people that are interested in spirit and beverage like beer, uh, they, they enjoy the story of the narrative barrel, right? That's the second part of all of this. But what if we improve that finishing product with spiral or swirls or whatever? It's more cost-effective, it's better for the environment I don't necessarily think it's the right thing to do. Um, <laughs> you can't, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> no, 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 no. I will say you, you can't reinvent the barrel. I think there's always um, a place for it. But I'm a fan of spirals and chips and stuff, especially when it comes to like specific wood species and getting that wood flavor. Um, I'm definitely a fan. I think there's room for all, but let the brewers. I feel like you'd have to outlaw barrels to get the consumer to like want that over something else. Purist. Did you, Jerry, when you guys did your product that was aged on wood instead of barrel aged, did you guys see anyone asking specifically? Because I think no, from a marketing no, perspective, was, that gets really into that point, right? I was pretty. We can do that. <laughs> I love this, dude. Though. It's I happening. Oh, well, yeah. I've also used spirals too. I just conditioned on is what I use as a pair. It's all in wording, in my opinion. Like eight conditioned on comparative to aged in. You know what I'm saying? So, but that's just my opinion. You, you know, I, I I saw this program one time on 60 Minutes or something, right? <laughs> if you've heard it or maybe it was dateline i don't know which one it was but there was this guy and he was giving this lady or maybe it was a maybe it was another guy i don't remember i don't see guys and girls in terms of whatever but um but they were like hey this is a flavor of <laughs> roasted chicken <laughs> and this is a flavor of oven roasted chicken and they're like my god it's on a it's on a stick and i still it's like it's like Thanksgiving dinner. I think the future is just, it's not wood, it's not alcohol, it's just flavor that's in a lab, if chicken flavor maybe. And it's just in a lab and you just like, yeah, we'll put this in vodka and it's, you know, it'll taste like bourbon, it'll taste like bourbon and then somebody will spin a yarn about it and it'll be fine. Yeah, I think that's what it's gonna be. Jersey. That's what I hope it's gonna be. You're living in 2050, man. <laughs> All right. Anyone else? I think we're good. So I just want to, first of all, give the people up here, uh, our, our producers, our makers, everyone a round of applause. I want to thank them all for coming out tonight, giving wonderful answers to the questions. Thank you guys for your time. Thank you guys also for supporting Louisville Beer Week. Um, I hope this event is twice as big next year. We're somewhere that, uh, somewhere, first of all, thanks also to Bourbon's Bistro for hosting us tonight, but uh, hopefully we fill this place out next year. And, um, 
We have uh, our same panelists back, some other panelists, and uh, we have uh, even better discussion about what's changed from 2022 to 2023. Thank you guys.